Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year, and this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I am Chris Bloxham, once again sitting in for Bill Rill. Tonight is a interesting and, and special night. It's November 13th, uh, late in the evening. Um, Bill and I had been discussing the recent policy change today and thought that this would be an interesting and uh, timely way of uh, – we thought that this would be an interesting and uh, lively discussion, especially in light of the new clarification that came out today. Bill, are you there? I am. Excited to be here, Chris. Glad to sit down with you and to have this conversation. You know, we were reflecting earlier today, you started Mormon Discussion Podcast a few years ago, and your stated purpose was to help members lead with faith. Um, in a lot of ways, for me at least, it seems like you could look at the the history of Mormon Discussion Podcast and say that it's been leading up to this point, because if there was ever a time that we needed to, if there was ever a time that we needed help, that the members of the church needed help, it's now. That uh, that feels like a guilt trip, Chris. Like all the weight is on my shoulders to to help Mormonism somehow figure out a way to to handle all of this. I think I think this is messy as as all of Mormonism is. I think that's probably a phrase I use a whole bunch in the last thirty or forty episodes. Is that Mormonism is messy? And I think as we kind of go through how I've emotionally dealt with the last seven days, and maybe even a little bit before that. It will be interesting, uh, listeners should know that following this episode, we'll release two episodes back to back. The second episode will be you, me, and a third person working our way through kind of the logic or intellectual side of this policy change. But, but certainly, emotionally, I'm, I'm still kind of reeling through this and, and trying to figure out, you know, how we kind of, uh, get anchored and, and move our way forward again. Let me read something that you wrote 10 days ago. You said, real faith is to step out beyond yourself into the dark and dreary world, knowing not what lies ahead. But the world doesn't have to be dark and dreary when you press forward in faith. How, do you even remember writing that? I do, and it can mean a lot of things at different times, right? So one of the things I've done in lots of my episodes is I validate those who are going through a faith transition and how it feels. What what I never want someone to do is to throw in the towel on faith and and what faith looks like. I mean, I think in many of my episodes, I validate people who leave Uh, in other episodes. I validate, you know, people who completely change the way in which they uh, encounter and experience the church. But certainly up until this point, and and I think we're going to kind of get into depth on this, but up until this point, I've always, I've always preferred and hoped that people would find a way to make it work within the church. And, and I think to some extent, I, I still hope people can make it work within the church. Why do you think people are experiencing so much pain with this recent policy? 
I think it's a perfect storm. One is one of the things is that I think the church has at least given the impression that it was little by little giving up some ground and that it was making what what us liberal Mormons would call progress on this issue of the LGBT members of our church. So that was one little piece. The other one was that the policy went after children and regardless of how the church wants to talk about that now. And again, we'll get in that into the second part, but this one after kids. And I think this just strikes a chord with members and, and then to kind of add to it has been kind of this messy process of how we've all sorted it out, having social media, all of us kind of bouncing off each other. It's one thing 15 years ago to run into something that you're frustrated with and, and think, yeah, maybe I'm the only one who's frustrated. But when you went on Facebook, you knew that everybody on the fringe and everybody in the middle was frustrated over this. And that just validated that this really was a problem. This really was an issue. And I think that just gave people more room to kind of experience uh, the emotional roller coaster of it all. Yeah, I, I, I think that's really, I think you nailed it. Um, has this... I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. Has this policy change, how, how has this personally affected you, this policy change that came out last Thursday? Well, I probably should talk for a moment kind of leading up to the policy change. I'll just be honest. I've, I've grown kind of more cynical and, and more frustrated with what I see within the church. And, it, and it's for a whole host of reasons. Um, I feel sometimes that, that leaders such as when Elder Ballard gave a talk here in southern Utah, there were some things he said, that it, and there were some things that are said in general conference recently. It's almost this idea that leaders want to say that questions are okay, but they're really scared to tell people that the information on the internet, most of the facts are pretty accurate. I mean, certainly critics will draw their own conclusions. We can argue those all day long, but the facts they're using are accurate, and leaders seem really hesitant to say that. And so as I've gone through Elder Ballard coming here to Southern Utah, as I've gone through this last general conference, as I listen to a talk uh, at BYU where, where some guy does some hero worship of Joseph Smith, I just feel like the church is kind of digging its heels in a little bit. And, and, uh, and, and so I've kind of, in my cynicism, in my, in my skepticism, and, and maybe I should just be blunt with listeners. I think I've said this to some extent. But if I, if I think about the way in which I frame my faith intellectually in my mind, I have severe doubts that the church is true and it's what it claims it is. Up until this policy change, I would have absolutely no ifs, ands, or buts told you that I, in my heart, still hoped the gospel was true and I was going to walk forward in faith as if it was. Now, to your question, you ask how I handled this when it came out. It felt like... I remember being like an eight-year-old kid and getting into a fight at school and some kid just punched me right in the stomach and it just sucked and you, and you keel over and you, and you try to catch your breath and it feels like everything inside you hurts. This announcement that this, this leak of this handbook change felt like that, uh, that 10-year-old kid on the playground again, punching me right in the yeah. stomach. And, uh, honestly, it, I don't know that in my 18 years in the church, I've ever been as upset and, and that strongly upset and that, that quickly upset with anything else that's happened. After that initial emotion that you felt, what do you remember what your initial thoughts were that went through your head? My initial thoughts was that this this handbook policy 
is wrong on so many levels. And my brain automatically starts thinking this through. And I'm thinking, you know, we've got article of faith number two. We've got, you know, little children. We've got, uh, we've got the brethren essentially going a much further step with same sex marriage being apostasy. In the past, Mitch Maines brought this up. The handbook talks about that, uh, a same sex couple could have someone who, who, um, who had homosexual behavior could have a disciplinary council. Now the change is that they definitely will. And then as I thought about this whole thing with the kids, it, it just didn't make sense in my head. I mean, I tried to look at it from every angle, um, that first couple of hours and I just couldn't find a way to make it work. I couldn't make it fit. And, and I think I'm fair in saying that because it seemed like about a hundred thousand other people, uh, felt the same way. My initial thoughts when I come into this policy change, I mean, just a lot of things running through my head. One is that the church has taken a stronger step against same-sex marriage than what was previously in the handbook. Um, I also just know in my background how much the brethren have been wrong through our church's history. And so I have no expectation that, that these guys are going to get it right a hundred percent of the time. They've just, there's just been too many serious errors in our doctrine and in theology and in our history in the past to, to put these guys on a pedestal and expect this to be true. And, and my gut just tells me that this is, this isn't heavenly father in this policy and, and especially with the children. Um, it just contradicts so much of our doctrine and theology with agency, with original sin and, and accountability and, uh, and Jesus, you know, telling any of us that if we get in the way of the children coming unto him, it's better that a millstone be tied around our neck and, and we be drowned in the depths of the sea. Um, there's just this idea that when you look at this policy when it came out, it looked bad from every single possible angle. And and to top it off, you had a 100,000 other people who seemed to feel the same way on social media. So after your initial reaction and your initial emotion – did you feel any better after, you know, a night of sleeping, the next day thinking about it, getting online? Did you, did time seem to help you at all? You know, it didn't. And, and here's why. So when it first came out, the emotion, the, the sadness, the, the angst, the frustration was, was almost unbearable, to be honest. And you try to, like, as time goes on, you're like, okay, there's gotta be, there's gotta be some explanation for this. There's gotta be some, some better framework, right? I'm, I'm huge on like working on false assumptions and trying to tear down, you know, bad ideas and, and lower expectations and figure out ways around these things. And, and as time went on on social media, you started seeing articles pop up from Fair Mormon and from different blogs that tried to explain why this policy was appropriate. And as I read those, it didn't make me feel any better. I, I read these and they did they just, they seemed like really weak arguments. And so you go to sleep for the night, you get up the next day. And, and to be honest, I mean, to be honest, Chris, I, the moment this happened and as I'm sitting here for these first two or three days, I'm like, man, this is it. I, I have to leave. This is, this is the line in the sand that I can't, I can't just excuse away. This is going to be the reason I'm going to have to leave the church. And, and again, sleeping on it, waking up the next day, all I did was find myself getting more and more angry. And then all of a sudden you hear that the church is going to respond to this. And it starts off that they're going to respond at like, you know, noon. And then they're going to respond at four and that never happens. Then they're going to respond at 7 p.m. and that never happens. Then they're going to respond at 8 p.m. And that didn't quite happen. It's like 8.20 and finally this this video pops up. 
with Elder Christofferson explaining. And, and again, his explanation felt weak. It felt, it felt inadequate and it felt like it did not at all address the reasons why this policy was going to hurt people, marginalize people, ostracize people, and how we could justify it in the name of the gospel. And, and so to be honest, the, the more I thought, the more I slept, the more I tried to just figure out how to work around this, the, the more upset I got. So would you say that, I mean, the emotion you're describing sounds like somebody who just lost hope, who maybe was feeling like, you know, we were heading towards a, a new day and, and, you know, heading, heading to a, a hopeful place and then your hope was just dashed. Is that kind of what you're saying? The easiest way to talk about it is the fact that whenever we are discussing issues in Mormonism, there are middle of the road members who don't see the problem. And then there's the conservative members who, you know, can explain away or defend anything. And when this went down, Everybody in the middle was couldn't figure out what was going on, and and so for those of us kind of on the liberal side of Mormonism, it was like like absolute crazy that this happened. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I I if you want to say lost hope, I mean, to some extent, I think that's absolutely true. I I don't know I don't know how to pick myself up and work my way through this. As I say, I've thought about leaving. I mean, that's that's how bad this is. I'm I, I've always made it a a point that. I'm, I'm hanging around until they kick me out. I mean, I'm, in, I'm here. I'm in. And this is, since I came out of my faith crisis four years ago, whatever it was, five years ago now, this is the first time, and this is by far way stronger. This is the first time I felt like, man, I gotta go. I, I can't, I can't stay. They, they've closed the door on me in terms of what just went down. And so I'm still trying to figure out how to pick myself up. Bill, do you, can you identify why? Why has this been so traumatic for you? So I'm going to put myself kind of out there and be vulnerable. Um, in, again, intellectually, I, I kind of just made the logical, reasonable belief that these men don't speak to Christ. But in my heart, I still held out hope that they did and that they, they truly are prophets, seers, and revelators. And, and when this policy thing got announced. I mean, for these 15 men to announce a policy that violates a handful of doctrinal and theological points and principles, and also to contradict Jesus's own teachings on children just seemed to be, it just, it was, it was 10 times worse than anything I could have expected the worst to be. Uh, a few minutes ago, you said that they closed the door on you. What What did you mean by that? In 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 having gone through my faith transition and come out the other side, one of the things that I hold really dear to my heart is is the effort I make to support and to help those on the margins. So when I when I say that, I mean I mean people who are in a faith crisis whose foundations have crumbled, or our gay brothers and sisters in the church who I, I feel are just harmed in such serious ways. And, and my whole purpose in staying and doing the podcast and, and making posts on Facebook and everything I do in my present life in Mormonism is to help the people who are ostracized, marginalized, 
and minimized. And this seemed like an absolute punch to their face. And hence it was a punch to my face. And it just felt like I can't, I can't walk forward with people. And the other thing I should add, Chris, was two days after this thing came out, I think this came out on Friday. And on, on Sunday, I go to church and there's a dozen people in my ward who are defensive and defending it and, and, you know, telling, telling us in Sunday school that anybody who, who dissents against this policy, that it's the great sifting process and they're the, they're the chafe and tears. And I just thought, man, if we're to the point where we're going to split members this, this far of a divide and we're going to have, you know, the, the people making comments that because they agree with the prophet, they're more faithful and I'm going to have to deal with this every week. And this policy is going to stick around and hurt my brothers and sisters and cause some of them to even kill themselves. Then I, I just, then, then there's, it's pointless. It's, it's better just to walk away. Well, Bill, what, I, I mean, you sound so, you sound so hopeless and, and hurt and, uh, you know, uh, members of the church are going to say, things that are hurtful and and you know that better than anyone you know going to church and hearing them compare it to you know the wheat and the tares and of course when mormons say that they mean that they're the wheat and the people leaving are the tares um how how do you why why does it surprise you that members of the church are going to defend some some members of the church are going to defend what the brethren when when the brethren make an administrative change or a policy change why did that why does that surprise you that some people are going to defend that so so vehemently? Right. I mean, isn't that our history? Right. And part of it is, I guess I'm still naive enough to think that all of us have some sort of line, right? That if that if President Monson walked up to Sister Jones and said, I want you to take a knife and stab your child, that Sister Jones would say, that's crazy and I'm not going to do that. And when this policy came out and what, what I think, I mean, because I, again, I think even the middle of the road members saw this as this was not – this was not good. Mm-hmm. And, and yet this came out and then you still have, I mean, a third of, of the ward, if not more, like they'll just defend at all cost. And, and for Mormonism to work for me, there at least has to be enough room that my perspective is at least allowed a seat at the table. And when I went to church on Sunday, again, mind you, I, I'd been crying. I've been, been angry. I've been, my blood, my blood pressure's up. I'm stressed. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling nauseous. I'm getting headaches. And I go to church on Sunday, like hoping, like, like hoping that I'm going to see the best of these people come out and they're, and I'm going to hear people say like, yeah, man, this, this is, this is unfortunate, sad. And I got the exact opposite, which was we're going to defend the church to the nth degree. No matter what these 15 men say or do, we just, you know, we know they're prophets and we'll follow them off a cliff if we need to. And, 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 and in the Sunday school lesson of trying to pose my perspective, and I didn't have a chance to say a word because, I mean, these people were just defending without taking a breath. And I just walked away from Sunday school and, and the thought in my head was there's no seat at the table. There's no seat at the table for me here. I, I, I think I would be speaking for your listeners when I, when I would express my shock that you have, you're so, you're so hurt and so desperate that you would, you would even consider leaving when the mission statement of your podcast is to, you know, lead with faith and try to figure things out even with, you know, even with all the problems. But, you know, always try to stay 
you know, try to stay in working the problem from within the church and within the, within the body. Um, you know, rather than, you know, that famous scene from the Ten Commandments where Moses is, um, wants to be authentic and come out and, uh, say he's a Hebrew and all of us are screaming at the TV, man, just become the Pharaoh and then free the slaves, you know? I mean, couldn't you do a lot better from within rather than, you know, uh, leave and, and, uh, I mean. Yeah. I, I, I look at lots of people out there in Mormonism and how they handle this, right? I listen to, to Richard and Claudia Bushman, Terrell and Fiona Givens, Adam Miller. I mean, you name it. I mean, I, I've, I've talked to all of them, all of the, the scholars in the church, all the intellectual members, and, and many of them pose Mormonism as messy. And many of them say things in private that shows a much greater frustration for Mormonism than they say publicly. And, and so I realize how messy this is, and, and I've always wanted to leave with faith. I've always wanted to be like, look, man, this Mormonism, Mormonism is like sometimes banging your head into the wall, and and yet they're just come. I guess everybody has a line, and and I get it, right? I come on every week, and I'm telling people, man, just just press forward and stay in, and figure out a way to make this work. And I try to offer people ways to make this work. And I feel like on most issues, I can, I can say, okay, here's some assumptions and expectations you have. Let's take these apart. Let's put them back together. And, and here's a way to proceed. And I've been sitting here for seven days now, scratching my head on this issue. And, um, the more I, the more thought I put into it, the more emotion I, emotional capital I try to spend figuring it out, the more I just come to the conclusion that this is just screwed up. Well, maybe there wasn't. You know, that, um, room on Sunday, but isn't that just one day? I mean, don't you still have faith in the goodness of people that, you know, eventually people will see the hurt that this has caused and, you know, maybe it takes months and even years for, for people to come around? Sure. I, I would even say this. I don't think nobody's going to convince me that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ were behind this policy change. I just, I am adamant. If, if I put my foot down on anything, I would say that this policy didn't come from our Savior. What I would add, though, is that the Savior can still make good come out of it. I think this this backlash from the middle-of-the-road Mormon, and is, is indefinitely from the fringe Mormon, has, was so strong that I sent, I think it sent a clear message to the brethren that that where they thought the middle was is not the middle. And, and I would have to bet that going forward, there's going to be a different approach with these 15 men. And then as these 15 men pass away and other men are called as, as apostles and, and into the first presidency, I got to believe that we begin to head a different direction. So I certainly uh, think the savior can yeah. work with this experience. Oh, it's, it's good to hear you hopeful there. Right. I mean, I, we, yeah. It's, we, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm, there's the, I think there's the bill we all, we all, uh, we all know and love. Um, that hope and that, you know, that pressing forward and that, uh, faith in a better, in a better future and, and that hope and faith that the church will, uh, you know, change for the better as we move forward, even as jerky and messy as it is, we, you know, we're always moving forward. Yeah. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about, Chris, we've kind of talking, we're talking about the effort I make to help others stay in and how I need to mm-hmm. kind of do the same thing. But one of the things we didn't hit on was my own personal spirituality. And, and let me just talk a little bit here for this. This is leading up to this policy issue. I've, again, we talk about me getting more angry, more cynical, but one of the things that I've lost a little bit of is, is my, 
outward connection to Christ. I mean, I certainly still am thinking about him constantly in my head. But what I mean is that outwardly, I struggle the last three, four, five months to pray. I struggled the last three or four months to read scriptures. And I'm still thinking about scriptures as I'm thinking about the podcast and ways to talk about issues and certainly scriptures on my mind, but to actually pick scriptures up and read them page by page. And I know like people on the apologist side are going to say, see, yeah, he's not reading and he's not praying and therefore he's losing the spirit. Let me stop that train of thought and say this. And I think many of the people who listen to this podcast will understand because of my frustration with the church, I've grown in some ways to resent the church. Um, a long time ago, somebody told me that they see the church as a, as a, a loving parent. And, and I wrote a blog post about, I see the church as an abusive parent. And because the church directs me to certain rituals, I resent those rituals because it's the church that's pointing that way. And I resent the church. And so do you mind, do you mind if I ask you some really personal questions? Please, then? Yes. So you said it a few months ago, you, you stopped praying very often. Before that, did you pray morning and night, uh, or at least at night? Or? Yeah, I mean, there was a time that my wife and I would kneel by our bed every night. There were times we would round our kids up before we all headed off to bed. There were times we would get our kids together in the morning for scripture study and for family prayer. And, and, uh, I certainly said my own personal prayers. And have you always have you always prayed traditionally, like kneeling at your bed, or do you find yourself praying as you drive, or just having a prayer in your heart? So, if I go back a little ways, it was always the formal prayer, you know, kneeling down and arms folded, and mm-hmm. you know, sitting in a you know, kneeling in a circle with your family. And um, as time has gone on, because because the church doesn't talk as much about it, so I don't resent it as much. I my conversations with God have been in my car. And, and that other than saying a prayer over the dinner sometimes is, is the only time I'm talking to God is in, you know, in the car ride thinking about him and, and asking him questions. I, uh, I just, I've grown, I've grown so resentful of Mormonism that I no longer want to validate the ways in which it points me to God because of my frustration with it. Resentful or, or weary? Both. I mean, I, I'm, I'm resentful, but I'm also weary. I, I'm skeptical. I'm cynical. I, I look at the church and the more I watch it, the more my intellect is, is winning over my heart in saying that, uh, that this is just 15 men doing the best they can. And, and I, I, I want to believe more than that. But what I, what I see, it causes despair. Don't you think it's normal though, throughout someone's spiritual life to ebb and flow and to sometimes feel, uh, you know, much closer to the rituals and, and then sometimes, you know, maybe drift away a little bit and then come back. Don't you think that's a normal process we all go through? Um, this, even in the midst of my faith crisis, I still felt like my spirituality was fine. I mean, I was, I was on this kick of studying grace and looking into the Savior's life and just, you know, even though I was struggling with the church, I still felt like my relationship with God was good and, so I, this is the first time I'm kind of in this real spiritual dip, and uh, um, I, I certainly agree with you. I think that life has ebb and you know an ebb and flow. I'm not naive enough to not think that this could be that. And you know, next week the brethren come out and announce that you know they've received a revelation and it solves some new problem in the church. I'm just well, I'm just trying to figure it out. Maybe this is just a different type of faith transition then. 
Maybe. I mean, um, John Pauline talks about the second dark night of the soul mm-hmm. where, where you f- finally think you figured it out and everybody, you, th- you think because you figured it out, everybody's going to be accepting of this kind of progressive way of looking at things. And then you just get a ton more pushback than you think. It, it might be that. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm certainly open to, I get it too, Chris, right? I mean, what we're trying to do is mm-hmm. pose this the way I feel. And, and yet we're trying to, you know, open up doors here for hope and for faith and for fixing it and for reconciliation. And, and I'm just trying to be honest where I'm at right now. I wanted the listeners to grasp that this is an absolute struggle and I'm, I'm trying to figure my way through. <clears throat> I, I hope it's an ebb and flow. I hope here's the ebb and the flow is about ready to happen. Um, and we'll see, you know, I'm, I'm certainly, in many parts of my life, I'm really optimistic, and I'm I'm usually the guy that gets up on the right side of the bed every day, and uh, so you know I'm open to that, and uh, I'm usually not down for too long, so we'll see what happens. It it sure feels like you're really in that um, that really that that emotional dark place that sometimes we all find ourselves in, and with as much study and and intellectual effort that you've put into your faith journey. It seems like you're, it seems like you're out of balance. You're using that emotion or you're in that emotional place and not using as much intellectual, uh, not using your intellectual gifts as much. Would you say that's accurate or would you say I'm off? Um, I think that as I've explored this policy change and the frustration I had leading up to it, I've tried to intellectually examine this. I can't make it work and hence my my emotional side is taking over right it's like it's like when you mm-hmm. you find yourself in some life or death situation and your brain tries to race for a solution to the problem and it's just not there and so then fight or flight kicks in and and you're realizing there is no way to fight back and there is no way to to just cleanly run away and and so all of a sudden, hopelessness kind of sets in in those kinds of situations. What about time? Um, if if one of if if somebody had reached out to you online or somebody had emailed you with the same desperation that you're expressing now, what would you say to them? Would you would you say, you know, not rush into anything, give it some time? What would you say? Well, I would say the same things I've always said, which is one, you got to have peace, and so. You know, I, I wouldn't want anybody to just throw in the towel and walk away. I would certainly say give it some time. But at the end of the day, you have to do what brings you peace. You can't, you can't live in this emotional turmoil all the time and constantly. And so you either have to find outlets. And if those don't work, then you got to do whatever it takes to bring you peace. And so I've always pushed for people to stay in, but I think I could point out 10 or 12 episodes where I've also said, look, if, if it gets too toxic, if the church is just too much, if you just, you just, you're at the end of the line, you know, don't, don't feel bad walking away. I validate that. I validate that for some people, for some people walking away is the answer and, and that there's no reason that they should feel guilty uh, for leaving Mormonism if they find something better. Now, the other side of the coin is that a lot of people don't. They leave the church, they become atheists, they, they become bitter, they join, you know, anti-Mormon, you know, uh, discussion boards and all they do is spend all day riffing on the church. And, and that's, I think that's healthy for a little while, but there's some people that have done it for years and years. And so, again, I just say this is messy. I, I, there is no perfect answer. The perfect answer, right? I say a prayer and, and the Holy Ghost comes in and I feel good again and we move on. 
but I've been, I've been, you know, for a week now, uh, seeking out answers. Um, in fact, I should probably say a few things here. I, I went to another, uh, another church for a night. Um, Brian Whitney made the comment online about, uh, he's, he's taken opportunities to go to other churches sometimes when, when the opportunity presents itself. And I thought maybe this would be good. I went to another church for the night and, uh, one of the things they did at the very beginning of their service was light this candle. And while I've been resenting Mormonism and its rituals, Mormonism never has presented to me anything spiritual involving a candle. And so when this, when this minister lit this candle, it, um, it spoke to me. I mean, I broke down. I, I, right away I start crying because all of a sudden I'm having a connection to God in that moment, but it's not from Mormonism. It's, it's outside of it. And, uh, the next day at work, a good friend who lives near me came to visit me. And, and he's, he's two feet in the church, but he's very empathetic to others. And, and he realizes that, you know, we all can disagree and, and he validates those perspectives. I explained this to him about this idea of resenting Mormonism rituals. And I talked about the candle and he said, Bill, have you ever tried meditating? And he said, how about I come over and we do that? And so, um, he came over a couple nights ago and, and we just went into my bedroom. We, we turned the lights down. We played some Navajo, uh, chanting music. Closed our eyes and just, uh, just meditated for like 15, 20 minutes, just focusing on our breathing in and out. And when that was over, I just felt a lot more peace. But, but part of that answer is that my connection to God, at least on some level now, probably resides in finding it outside of, of the three hour block and outside of Mormonism's rituals. And at least, at least validating to me that that's okay. And, and to be honest too, I should throw this out there. I mean, church is tough. I don't, I don't know how you feel, Chris, but we so little talk about the savior and we so little talk about his atonement and how to utilize it. We're so busy talking about the appendages to the gospel, like family history. We're working at the cannery and having a two year supply of food and water and, and what scout camp was like. And we so rarely talk about the savior and his life and how we utilize his great sacrifice. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we, sometimes we do. Um, it's just tough. Could I, could I ask you this? How, how are we going to get through this? There are probably thousands of people hurting, thousands of people that are feeling the same feelings you're feeling. And, and thousands of people who are resigning right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's my heart breaks really that we're losing so many people over, over this, um, over the, over the pain and hurt that they, they feel like they can no longer stay. Um, what would you, what would your advice be to, to people that are hurting, people that are in the same position? Well, um, let me start off by saying I'm still here. Um, while I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly thinking about what kind of options I have and what I can do both in and, and outside of the church as far as finding some level of spirituality outside the three hour block. Uh, I'm here. I would, my advice to those who are hurting would be to find some outlet, uh, find something that's outside of the church. Go meditate. Go, uh, go enjoy a church service from some other faith, uh, a night a month or a couple nights a month. Um, I think you do have to give it time. I think you do have to kind of just let this weigh in. But I would also add too that the ball is in the brethren's court. And what I mean by that is I think they have no way now of not recognizing that they went too far. And that I'm going to give them some time, but now the ball's in their court to try and figure out a way to address this in a serious way. And again, we're having this interview after the first presidency letter. They need to address this in a serious way where they acknowledge that they need to take some steps 
to to make the church more Christ-centered and more based on the Savior's life and how he treated others. There was an article that came out this week that talked about, you know, why do we always think that Jesus was so accepting of people? Here would be my comment. When I look at the New Testament and everybody the Savior encounters, the people that he is not accepting of are the religious teachers of his day who are adamant that they are right and he is wrong. And and I would suggest that we all take a step back and look at how he treated those who were sinners that recognized they were sinners, how he treated those who were on the fringe and the margins, and he seems to always be extending a hand of fellowship to them. And so I would simply say, look, I'll wait, but the ball is in the brethren's court to some extent. The other thing I would add too is that maybe just to kind of end on this note, um, if you go on my Facebook page, you're going to see that I am angry and my posts reflect that emotion and I am, I am really, I'm really throwing a lot out there right now. And I, on some level, I, I am, I'm saying I'm sorry for that, but that's where I'm at. That's what I'm feeling. I, I'm just, it's that, it's that raw right now. And as I've looked at the Savior's life the last couple of days and been pondering on Him, one of the things I recognize is that as the Savior encounters strife, He reacts almost in every situation, handing peace back or giving people things to chew on, but not doing it in a way that he sends them running. Maybe all of us could just take a step back, look at the Savior and realize how divided this issue has made us and perhaps see how much he worked to reconcile and to and to not be angry, but rather to truly be the peacemaker. If anything, maybe over time we can we can kind of all on both sides center ourselves back on that's that's excellent advice I, i'd also add that history has kind of shown us in our church that eventually eventually we the, the church gets it right and um i i should appreciate it bill that's that's very very good advice and um very hopeful and and uh perhaps gives those that are struggling a little bit of strength to go on a little bit further i hope so i'm trying we're all uh we're all in this together and we're all hurting and uh, I just hope in each of our own ways that we can find uh, we can find peace and, and I think that does come through the gospel of Jesus Christ fantastic brother thanks for talking to me this evening you're welcome my friend Let's go.